0: Hello, my name is Leonora Paula. I'm a professor in the English department at Michigan State University. My favorite comic is Indivisível
1: by Black Brazilian author Marília Marx because it is a wonderful representation of Black geographies in the Americas. Welcome to the latest episode of the Graphic Possibilities Podcast. Welcome back to the latest episode of the Graphic Possibilities Podcast. This month, we talked with Dr. Tobias C. VanVeen. Dr. VanVeen is a visiting scholar at the Reimagining Value Action Lab at Lakehead University and visiting professor in, in humanities at Quest University. He holds a doctorate in philosophy and communication studies from McGill University. His transdisciplinary research and teaching addresses the philosophy of race, sound and technology and critical media studies. He has published widely on Afrofuturism, post-humanism and electronic dance music culture, EDMC. Tobias is the lead editor of the Black Lives, Black Politics, Black Futures special issue of Topia the Canadian Journal of Cultural Studies, 2018, and editor of the Afrofuturism Special Issue of Dance Co, the Journal of Electronic Dance Music Culture, in 2013. He's also the co-editor of the Journal Special Issue Echoes from the dub, Diaspora, from 2015. In 2020, he launched the Afrofuturist Studies and Speculative Culture series on Lexington Books, a sound media artist himself. He's a filmmaker and tactical turn- turnbullist since 1993. Tobias has exhibited and curated intervention events and broadcasts worldwide. He's an award-winning pod, broadcaster, and photojournalist, and he hosts other planes in the Afrofuturist podcast on creativedisturbance.org. In our conversation, we delve into the history of Afrofuturist sound, and the final an impact of Detroit techno in that history this is another one of those class conversations recorded for the podcast and i'm joined by Sinclair Portis one of the co-leads for the graphic possibilities research workshop on this recording give it a listen Uh, Dr. Tobias C. Van VanVeen is a professor in humanities, at, is it, are you still at Quest University?
0: Uh, not this year, but yes, I'm a visiting professor at Quest University. Yeah. He received his doctorate in
1: philosophy and communication studies at McGill University. His research and teaching addresses philosophy of race, sound, and technology. In critical media studies, he's published widely on Afrofuturism, post-humanism, and electronic dance music culture, or EDMC. Uh, Tobias is the lead editor on several special issues, including Black Lives, Black Politics, Black Futures, special issue of Utopia, the Canadian Journal of Cultural Studies, as well as the editor of the Afrofuturism special issue of Dance Cult, the Journal of Electronic Dance, Music Culture. He's also the co-editor of special issue Echoes from the Dub Diaspora from 2015. And very recently, just in the last couple of years, he launched the Afrofuturist Buddies and Speculative Culture series at Lexington Books. So his work speaks very directly to the questions of Afrofuturism and sound. They're key to our discussions uh, in this section. So I'm really happy to have opportunity to have him here. He does have a slideshow it sounds, but as is the way of these things, I always want to sort of start out by... Uh, letting students know, uh, those who are here, that we will have Q&A near the, in the last part of of the hour. So if people have questions, just drop in the Q&A and, and we will um, make sure that we try to address them as we did previously. And I do have a s- certain set of questions that we're kind of offering up for folks to sort of building on some of the things that we've talked about in this in in this section and I'm, I'm hoping that Tobias will be able to bring in some of the the visuals that he's created and some of the sounds that he's curated uh as part of that that process but because this class is the IH class which stands for Integrated Arts and Humanities you've spoken to my class before I think the class that you spoke to was smaller than this class actually I think or maybe it was about the same size I don't know it was a while ago. Time has no meeting in the pandemic. So I can not even remember when it was, but I know that you did it because I remember us being in a room and you talking. so it might've been two years ago. Might've been a year. I think it might've been two years ago, one year ago. Okay, all right. So not that long ago, but so much has changed. <laughs> <laughs> so much has changed the world. So this is a great opportunity for us to, to learn from and hear from someone who's really thought a lot about sound obviously we we've talked a lot about the founding fathers of sound um that being son Ra, lee scratch perry george clinton but obviously another really important element that we should be mindful of is the centrality of michigan and in particular detroit to so the origins and definition of afrofuturism so to is my, my first question i'm hoping that um this this sort of aligns with a little bit what like you have in terms of your slides
0: how do you define Afrofuturism? What is Afrofuturism? <laughs> when I was starting my dissertation on Afrofuturism, this was a central question because no one had succinctly uh, answered this question. Uh, I began writing what Afrofuturism in the, in the, in the late 1990s through the afrofuturism.net serve, And it was actually a perennial question of debate and discussion as to what Afrofuturism was, is, or could be. Uh, now, there is Mark Derry's piece from 1992 that kind of frames the potential of an Afrofuturism. But I prefer to move on from that piece, especially today, to look at the kind of the uh, research that has emerged since. So I, I think a, a good starter point here is definitely Tasha Womack's definition. And just to be clear, I don't posit a definition myself. I'm a white scholar, Um, doing Black studies. I look at what Black scholars are saying about Afrofuturism and what the Afrofuturist artists themselves say, as well as uh, Black speculative artists um, in general, say, whom we as critics and scholars call Afrofuturists. Um, So I'm not looking to impose a definition. I'm very interested in assembling various um, definitions from artists and scholars. Um, So I, I think Tasha Womack does a great job. Uh, she says it's, it's an intersection of imagination, technology, the future, um, liberation, um, in which Afrofuturists redefine culture and no- notions of blackness for today and the future by combining elements of science fiction, historical fiction, speculative fiction, fantasy, Afrocentricity, magical realism with non Western beliefs. I mean, this is a good starter point. It's descriptive, not necessarily prescriptive. Um, I think ronaldo anderson's definition um that he posits in the afrofuturism 2.0 volume out on lexington books gets more into a theoretical apparatus that positions uh the discourse uh in respect to an understanding of socioeconomics, um, black liberation politics um uh, emancipatory movements and technology and here i think with the 2.0 definition you, you start to get something um, a little bit more substantial um that sort of sets the, the stakes of Afrofuturism within uh, the sort of last hundred years of contemporary history. Um, so here we get 2.0 is the moniker that he's used to kind of rethink what Afrofuturism is. Um, it's the beginning of a move away and an answer to the, the Eurocentric perspective of the 20th century's early formulation of Afrofuturism that wondered if the history of African peoples, especially in North America had, had been deliberately erased. Um, so he's actually responding directly to Derry, who kind of wonders whether um, there can be an Afrofuturism, and um, uh, Ronaldo's answer is definitely yes. <laughs> um, and uh, Ronaldo goes on to say, or to put it more plainly, it's future-looking Black scholars, artists, and activists who are not only reclaiming their right to tell their own stories, but also to critique the European and American Digerati um class of their narratives about cultural others past present and future and challenging their presumed authority to be the sole interpreters of black lives and black futures so i like where this goes because it positions Afrofuturism futurism also in a way that critiques the way in which it has already been represented um, um, and this is a third kind of <laughs> definition that Ray and I came up together when we were um, penning the introduction to the Utopia issue, uh, which is a fantastic journal issue. And I'm happy to give PDF access to anyone who wishes. Just, if you don't have institutional access, just uh, contact me and I'll, I'll send you the issue because it's, it's stock full of great articles and interviews. Um, here we posit that Afrofuturism as a theoretical lens, like this is um, a lens that you can apply um, uh, to look at the world uh, just like any number of theoretical tools that you encounter in uh, graduate school but also like within this sort of art history with an activist history like there's different political lenses and aesthetic and artistic approaches afrofuturism is a coherent um, theoretical lens in this sense um, so it's a theoretical lens in which to critically review and repurpose lost avenues and buried horizons so there's a sense of uh, uh retrieving that which has been lost and then reinventing from that retrieval um as we reassess reinvent and return the past so as to unearth and infiltrate new futures into the present um, at stake is the need to reconstitute represent and reinvent meaningful black subjectivities identities and becomings, social roles spiritualities and family relations in the wake of enforced Black unbeing and anti-Blackness." So we're subtly working in the language of other theorists here. Uh, From Sun Ra, this idea of unearthing being, of uh, thinking of of cosmological um, uh, ungrounding of being, um, the sort of science fictional aspect that is more than projection. Um, Also, a sense of Sankofa, of uh, returning to the past, uh, not to find one true past or the authentic past, but also to reinvent in the absence of narrative uh, where it has been deliberately erased. Um, uh, and also a sense, too, of um, like in the wake comes from Christina Sharp's work. Um, so, you know, I, I, other scholars have posited this since, actually, since we wrote this, that Afrofuturism in a lot of ways addresses the kinds of uh, problematic anti blackness that the discourse of Afro pessimism identifies. Um, so in respect to the contemporary movements of, of black studies right now, Afrofuturism and Afro-pessimism are in a way are kind of two parts to a, a dialectic. Um, one understanding the mechanisms of anti-blackness um, and the and the other po- like positing not not a solution to that, but actually saying this has already been happening. Um, this has already been a response um, to uh, structural white supremacy. Um, and I think this definition is a little bit impoverished on my part, what's missing here is, um, I think an economic and uh, political focus that needs to be inserted <laughs> uh, into our definition um, because it's also certainly the, the case as our title to the issue says that uh, black lives, black futures and black politics go hand in hand. And that well, that black politics includes um, attentiveness to rearranging economic relations for a more equitable society in the Anthropocene in the era of climate crisis, um, which disproportionately affects people of color around the world. Um, so today, if I was to rewrite this definition, again, I would update it again to position it within that framework as well. Well, so, one
1: of the things I want to yeah. call attention to for students is, you know, we, we've sort of seen the Womack definition. We've studied the the dairy definition. Um, we've looked at, Alondra Nesson's sort of definitions um, for Afrofuturism. Um, and and so all of these sort of definitional elements have slightly different different approaches because they're sort of grounded in particular theoretical framings, right? And, and to hear you um, talk about it. I'm reminded, you know, one of the sort of complexities of talking about Afrofuturism is around the sort of like deep theoretical framing that is underpinning everyone's exploration of Afrofuturism, no matter how simple or complicated their definition is, they're actually in conversation with a body of knowledge. And in, in, in particular, we spent some time in class talking about post-colonial theory and talking about things like the post-colonial body, talking about things like surveillance, in part because those things are so fundamental to how people are thinking about Blackness and thinking about its relationship to, to sort of this little Western experience that if you don't know those terms or don't know how theorists have theorized those terms, it becomes very difficult for you to understand exactly the kind of movement Afrofuturism is trying to allow for people to have. And in the context of sound, I think one of the things really interesting is that deeply within some of the contours of um, the work that's being produced, while the the artists themselves may not necessarily quote unquote theorists, they are employing similar kind of theoretical framing. And so one of the things I I, I want to make sure that, because of course, you know, for the students, they're being introduced, you know, I, I'm i very clear that this is an introduction to Afrofuturism, but it's a theory class because it's a theoretical thing, right? There's There are ways that we are seeing it in practice, but it's a theoretical thing. It's a, a transformation, a transformation in thought, that is supposed to be a trans, lead to a transition in practice, that's supposed to lead to a, a different kind of outcome, right? And so, like, there's like, <laughs> there's always going to be like a theoretical thing about it. And I and I wonder if you can talk a little bit about that relationship between, you know, how you're theorizing Afrofuturism, because like you as you just indicated, which I think will be difficult sometimes for students to understand when people are theorists for a living, they might define something on Tuesday and then go do something and be like, "Ah, eh, I need to change the definition. And, and does that mean that the original definition was wrong? No. What it means is that they're trying to contextualize what they've understood about the nature of the problem through a consistent engagement with like the body of knowledge that is creating the world, right? And so they're they're, it's like a diagnostic process, S- similar in writing, like when you write something, then you rewrite it the first time you wrote it, the second time you write it, like each one of those those drafts, that redrafting is, is a, a honing of the ideas that are at the core of your thinking. And so I, I, I'm, I think it'd be really interesting for you to sort of talk a little bit about um, this, these, these ideas of, of the sort of theoretical transformation that you've seen in Afrofuturism. In a very short period of time, like the other thing I would, I would emphasize students is that Afrofuturism has evolved very quickly from a kind of ideological standpoint. Like if you think about how knowledge is great, like it's evolved very, very quickly. If, it, if you wanted to compare it, it's like some things take, you know, they're, they're, they're a turtle. Afrofuturism is like a cheetah. Like, it's that much faster in terms of how how much has changed over time. And I'm not joking. If you think about, like, when this was published versus when this was published versus when this was published, it is not a lot of time. So it's a tremendous amount of transformation. So anyone, undergraduate, graduate, full professor, would be hard-pressed to always understand the nature of that transformation. And if we talk a little bit about that, I think it'd be really interesting for students to understand.
0: Yeah. One way to do this, actually. I mean, I'm just going to pop back to the positioning that I undertook in my dissertation for a second, because when I was thinking about writing about Afro, like Afrofuturism, it was very much within the context of understanding it as a fundamental set of challenges to the Western philosophical project. So uh, uh, for, for better or for worse, uh, when I was undertaking my dissertation writing, I actually had not yet fully encountered the work of Sylvia Winter. And I'm just sort of bracketing that at the beginning of the discussion, because within Black Caribbean thought, you have a history of challenging the Eurocentric discourse around the subjectivity of the human. That sort of stems from Foucault, of understanding that the Western conceptualization of the human stems from a Judeo-Christian perspective, often contains notions of hierarchy and dominion, um, patriarchy, and and white supremacy, and that these are baked in not just at uh, pronounced ideological levels, obvious levels, but also baked in at more subtle unconscious levels to the very definitioning of the human. Um, uh, and Sylvia Winters' work challenges this, but what I started to uncover through my own work with Afrofuturism, and I got involved in this because I was a DJ in the rave scene. So I came to it precisely through Detroit techno, Chicago house music and electro music and, and playing records that I realized were more, were much more than just rave tracks or club bangers, that they contained a kind of insurgent uh, and radical, if not revolutionary kind of sonics that was destabilizing my sense of identity and my sense of being human. And I realized that the titles on the labels and and the artwork around it was uh, indicating that there was something more going on here, that the artists themselves saw the music as questioning what it meant to be human uh, and coming from a, a, a perspective of the oppressed, you know, the sort of palo like pedagogy of the oppressed, that, that there, there was a communication here that um, the default norms of what it means to be human were already exclusionary for people of color within the history of colonization and the middle passage um, that has led us to where we are today. Um, so I had studied philosophy and nowhere had I seen this kind of challenge to the default human articulated within the philosophical tradition. I, I saw an exclusion and I'd come out of Western philosophy through post-structuralism, through deconstruction, through Foucault and uh, quite significantly through Derrida and Derrida's critique of ethnocentrism within the philosophical project. And everyone forgets that side bracket by Jacques derrida is is a brown jew from algeria he's not a french philosopher and his entire project was very much questioning the edifices of french philosophy Um, so when i encountered afrofuturism i went i'm done with reiterating the discourse of white intellectuals i don't want to write a dissertation on derrida i want to pick up what they're indicating we should be doing now which is looking for alternative discourses that explain the moment that we're in and that offer philosophical tools to reconstitute the world around us in a way which is more equitable, more more just, um, and that especially recognizes the untold and um, repressed narratives of the oppressed, the colonized. So this led me to, in particular, the work of Kajua Shun and his book, More Brilliant Than, Than the Sun, and it led me down a rabbit hole of, d- of discovering and going deeper into uh forms of particularly afro afro-american music but also afro-diasporic music that seemed to have a discourse going on around the alien around science fiction around off-world sound um, so this led me to a number of concepts that was in the work and also that described what was going on in in that work so the importance significantly of the black radical imaginary as a kind of dimension a new sphere. Um, uh, Paul Geroy's idea of the call and response of music across the Black Atlantic, but also the Black Pacific and the Black Caribbean and the Global South, of how sounds are traveling and remixing and creating a conversation through rhythm and through samples. I want to stop you.
1: I think one of the things that students are are sort of struggling with is, you know, if it's an Afrofuturist sound, what does that mean? How does that separate it from other kinds of sounds that we might associate with other quote-unquote thought movements. And in particular, I think you've sort of indicated in, in your, your journey to it that there is a very particular thing that's happened.
0: Yeah, so the previous framing there was totally philosophical and very theoretical in terms of positioning. When we're thinking about this in terms of sound, what's really interesting about Afrofuturism is that it's not really a sound in itself. It's a tendency within Black artistic and aesthetic production. And it's, or a trajectory and it's, and it, and, and, and that this tendency or trajectory is latent in all artistic and sonic production. It is not essentialist, and, and this comes out of, uh, the artists themselves. So there's this kind of infamous quote from Derek May, who's considered one of the progenitors of Detroit techno. And he sort of infamously said the music is just like Detroit complete mistake and already that's an interesting thing because if you know the history of Detroit in respect to uh the automotive industry and and its collapse it, it feels like it, it was it was a, a stillborn mistake like a kind of derelict or like from, like from the inception and then he then he went, goes on to say it's like George Clinton and Kraftwerk are stuck in an elevator with only a sequencer to keep them company so you've got funk and George Clinton and everything like like parliament funkadelic um that that he would bring into performance the the mothership descending on 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 stage and then you've got one of the most whitest acts of the 1970s Kraftwerk a German synth pop band totally robotic who would perform like robots in in performance and so what's what's interesting here is that Detroit techno especially does not come out of a pure a pure black tradition it comes out of a very modern world, one that we recognize today, where influences and sounds are coming from all directions at once, and and in a way, it comes out of a a, 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 a conflict and a tension and uh, be, between what we might you know broadly characterize as white and black sonic cultures, you know, be, but but also craftwork as very much a very intentional, as you can see from the album cover embodiment of the machinic aesthetic that at the time artists in Detroit felt very familiar with because uh, their 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 families their parents had worked on the automotive assembly lines. And, and they were very intimately connected with this idea of uh, becoming machinic of working closely with industrialization and industrial machines and so craftwork musically expresses this to a large degree. In the nineteen seventies, this industrialization of society, and this machine, you know, this machination—they have songs like "Computer Love" and "We Are the Robots." Um, so, I think sonically, what's interesting about Afrofuturism is it's always negotiating with forces that are other to Black culture. It's 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 always reappropriating those or expropriating those forces back into itself in order to reconstitute them. Um, and, and this is an interesting positioning that differentiates it from Afrocentrism and a purely Afrocentric project. So if, if you were to look at Afrocentric music histories or Afrocentrism as um, a, th- a theoretical project within the academy, um, Afrofuturism isn't pushing for, like in the sense, uh, 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 um, a sort of authentic and, and purely black lineage. It's it's understanding uh, hybridity at the origin, which is, in terms of post-colonial theory, it it ties into and works quite well with Homi K. Baba's ideas of hybridity. And and, and, and understanding that the colonized space in which we are in is, is a space of hybridity at the origin. And that's why you see white scholars and white DJs, you know, like me, I guess, in this space too, because it's a, it's a sonic force that is capable of deterritorializing all bodies, and all identities. So it's it's not just for a particular group of people; it's meant to change the world at a bigger scale. Um, and it has, because these are the sounds that 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 propelled rave culture, which was a massive, like probably like the last subculture in that strict sense of subculture was rave culture. You know, uh, uh, be, uh, before the, digi- the, di- the digitalization of the internet created a mass dissemination paradigm where everything is always accessible, in the sense of the subculture as something that is actually sub the culture and required digging into distribution and channels and means of discovering it, rave culture was the last mixture of activism and art and politics that had that 20th century formation. And it was significantly propelled by. Uh, Detroit techno and Chicago house music. Does that get it? Does that help? <laughs>
1: no, it does. I think that's I think that's really yeah. important because obviously when we're talking about um, sound and and Afrofuturism, uh, the centrality of Detroit is, is a is a crucial element there, and the idea, of course, that Afrofuturism is for everyone is 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 I think perfectly clear for people who think about Afrofuturism, but isn't always clear. I think in practice for people who are coming to it new, right? And I think sound is a place where like that inclusivity inclusivity is the most prominent for people because they're experiencing everyone's experiencing the sound and experiencing the message at some level. So you know, and just to go back to the point, I mean, what can you tell us about that 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 Detroit? moment in terms of the formation of of like contemporary Afrofuturism.
0: Yeah. I mean, it'd be neat to do a little bit of um, just diving through some of the art, like the artwork. Um, I've chosen to focus here on Underground Resistance, which is a collective that arose in the late 1980s. The origins of Detroit techno go back to the early 1980s, really with Juan Atkins and Model 500 producing early electro music that its lyricism actually sought to um, deal with the uh, trauma of the Vietnam War because also the the older musicians either had friends or themselves were soldiers in the war. So this idea, too, of like the cyborg soldier sort of came out of the Vietnam War, that traumatic experience. And also the Vietnam War brought yet another level of industrialization to warfare that was quite mechanized. So underground resistance is a collective primarily spearheaded by Mad Mike Banks and originally with Jeff Mills and DJT-1000, a.k.a. Alan Oldham. And it's since then, it grew. Jeff Mills went off on his own thing. So did Alan. But all these people have come through this collective. And like affiliated with them is Drexia, which is, there's a lot of articles now out about Drexia. Um, But they were very underground in the 90s. Very hard to find their records. And the UR records would come into the record shop that I bought records from, Basics, in uh, Vancouver, BC. And they would sit at the back of the bin. And honestly, very few people would buy them. It, they would be very science fictional, very harsh at times, like very abrasive sounds. Uh, but I was immediately drawn to it, <laughs> I wanted to know what was going on. And this album, especially from 98, by by then they had already been putting out close to 10 years worth of vinyl, because they started around 89. Uh, but this album really encapsulated their messaging and brought it together into a coherent statement. There's a couple things worth noting. You don't know who, except for a couple names, this is produced by Andrea Holland as the Unabomber, but for the most part, you don't really know who's in the collective. Uh, Heteronyms were common, not just pseudonyms, but heteronyms, like artists producing under multiple aliases. Uh, Like release number 30, there's no physical, like there's no image, there's no headshot, right? That's for the track Aquaticism. So it's trying to represent the unrepresentable. And I just want to point out the contrast to today's electronic music, where everyone is name branded. uh, And that name branding is then spread across social media. This was the antithesis of that. This was very much putting a science fictional persona first. And when you are would perform, and it's going to flip down for a second here, that they would often be in bandanas all the time. In this bottom photo, that's Mad Mike on the far left. Um, to the right is Gerald Stinson of Draxia. And then that shot at top, that's actually a photo of mine. That's um, Cornelius Harris performing at Mutech in Montreal back in 2008. So they would often seek to uh, like obscure their identities. And also it it projects, just like Public Enemy from the early 1990s, they're, they're working with the um, politics and the imagery of Black Power, of like the Black Panthers. And just like Public Enemy brought that into hip hop, you are brought that into electronic music. Um, and yeah, so this is their manifesto, and I th- I think it's a very powerful man like manifesto. I'm guessing whoop, I'm guessing Mad Mike wrote this. And actually, I can't quite read the top of it because it's being hidden right now by a uh, annoying bar on the screen. Um, I can read it for you. you it yeah, yeah, sure. Go for it. Yeah. Um, underground yeah. resistance is a label for a movement,
1: a movement that wants change by a sonic revolution. We urge you to join the resistance help us combat the mediocre audio and visual programming that's being fed to inhabitants of Earth. This programming that is stagnating in the minds of the people, building a wall between races and preventing world peace. It is this wall we are going to smash. By using untapped energy potential of sound, we're going to destroy the wall much the same as frequency shatters glass. Techno, techno is a music based in experimentation. It is a music for the future of the human race. Without this music, there will be no peace, no love, no vision. By simply communicating through sound, techno has brought people of all different nationalities together under one roof to enjoy themselves. Isn't it obvious that music and dance are the key to the, to the universe? So-called primitive animals and tribal humans have known this for thousands of years. We urge all brothers and sisters on the ground to create and transmit their tones and frequencies no matter how so-called primitive their equipment may be. Transmit, transmit these tones and wreak havoc on the programmers.
0: That is powerful. It is. <laughs> it really is. And uh, this came out, you know, I'm trying to find, like, the first instance where this was released uh, because I remember coming across this on the internet in, like, 1995. So... And this image on the left, I have saved on my hard drive since the mid-1990s. It's actually not easy to find. This was an actual poster that they printed up. And at the time, if you wanted to find uh, the record store, because like uh, Underground Resistance does their own music distribution. They refuse to work with major labels or any major distributor. They have their own distributor. It's called Submerge. And they had their own physical space. And their original space in Detroit had no address. Like they weren't listed anywhere. You had to find it. And and so one of the earliest articles that I read in a magazine that no longer exists called Straight No Chaser about UR uh, talks about like Matt, Mad Mike talks about seeing you know people from Japan and like Europe like driving around Detroit in like the early '90s, which is no joke. Um, trying to find UR headquarters, trying to find Submerge, you had to go and find it. You know it, it was uh, so this idea of somewhere in Detroit. Right. So um, but yeah, the uh, the manifesto is very potent. I mean, this is well before, like in academia, the articulation of affect theory and sound studies and sonic theory and and uh, Steve Goodman's work around sonic warfare. I mean, I mean, this is a absolutely like intuitive and accurate understanding of the force of sound as rhythm. And it also comes out of the heritage of sun rock who really articulated this in all of his work, in, in his writing, in his poetry, in his manifestos, and in the way that he wrote music and performed it with the orchestra. This this idea that earth is out of tune, and that earth needs retuning with different rhythms, different rhythm machines, different understandings of tone, and that and that music itself can heal the body. It can propel you to do any number of things. So sound is a very potent force. It's an affective force. There's nothing metaphysical about it at that level. It's molecules moving into and through your body. So it's capable of reprogramming your neurons. And if you've been to a loud concert, you know this right away, of course, or even just putting on a piece of music will make you feel a certain way. But in the context of rave culture, especially in the 1990s, when mass groups of people, you know, thousands of people in a warehouse were subjecting themselves to very loud sound for Long periods of time, while taking um entheogens and, and substances that also like deprogram the brain and cause like neuroplasticity, then you're talking about actually deprogramming self through collective sonic ritual. one
1: of the things you said earlier is that this manifesto, and again for students, it's important to recognize that what what Dr. Van Veen is talking about is this manifesto is coming out before a lot of theories around how sound operates as a cultural force have been articulated or are stabilized at some level, right? So um when we talk about Sun Ra as a philosopher or a theoretician that we did earlier, and and remember that Sun Ra thought about using his music to stop nuclear war and 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 working with musicians to create like these sort of like Public events around trying to promote universal love and things like this, and this sort of transformation um, offered in his performances with the orchestra. And this is a similar, a similar thing, a different generation, right? It, it's it's basically a continuation of this practice, and so this goes back to Dr. Manbey's point that you know, the sound is a set of practices that sort of permeates and, and persists, and even though we don't necessarily always have the language. Um, to define it as such, it's, it's there. So this is one of the always the complexities when we think about Afrofuturism. We're often recovering practice that's already happened and recognizing it in the context of, oh, this is this is that black transformative anti, you you know, universal love practice in this in this form. Here it is in a different form, so on and so forth. And you know, from a theoretical standpoint, academics, people like ourselves are theorizing to understand it, right? We're we're, at some level creating words to try to understand it. It already exists. We're trying to understand it. So that's exactly what Mark Derry imperfectly, but significantly did. Like he understood that there was something happening. He gave it a name. That name allowed a lot of people to go like, oh no, I understand this. That is referring to this thing that already exists. And I, I think of it this way. Right. And so one of the things that you see seen when you're when, when I mean talking about this is you're you're seeing some of the patterns of recovery that are so important to Afrofuturist practice. And again, you know, when we're thinking about what happens when we're studying Afrofuturism, it isn't much about recovery and to go to, the, you know, I've talked about Kojo in, in, uh, in class and this idea of the future industry and how significant that is in terms of his attack on these different arenas that are as this manifesto suggests the system is programming you there needs to be an intervention right and and afrofuturism is that intervention so i just wanted to like bring bring some of those strands together for for the students because they they actually know some of the people that you're talking about they they already you know read sun Ra. they they know you talked about that but you know you're you're pulling some of the the sort of like detroit element into a lineage of transformation that's very important right and it's significant right we're in Michigan we are really close to a really important place where fundamental elements around Afrofuturism are, are formulated by sort of a grassroots again theor, theorizing by the by the community by the actors by the practitioners. and that's always important to, I think to call attention to and on that note, I have a little question to kind of like you were saying, I feel like
0: some of the students a lot of times may get kind of bogged down by these artists and things like that that have happened in the past, like and kind of get bogged down sometimes by like, who's this and stuff like that, um, which, you know, can give them more things to research and more music to find but do you um could you name some artists mainstream or otherwise currently like uh underground resistance or some um that are kind of ascribing to this afrofuturistic sound or evolving that sound in a way in the in the current time i mean i don't know how current i'm going to be <laughs> and this is probably going to show more uh, like a generational gap. And I like, like whenever I teach Afro, like Afrofuturism, I actually look to my students because they will bring in things that are just like hot and fresh. Like, so semi current, but not really current would be Janelle Manet, who I think is very much an Afrofuturist 2.0 artist. Like she is fully aware of this lineage. When she put out the Metropolis suite, and then from went on there to do the arch android and started developing this time traveling narrative about being cindy mayweather as a cyborg this was a like a very intentional like reconstitution of the Afrofuturist heritage plus she she i can't remember the exact story of how she met prince prince actually like went to one of her early concerts and then picked her up in a limo and said i'm gonna help you know like do you like, like I, I'm trying to find the right language for this because I've been critiqued for saying that he brought her under his wing, but there is a history of mentorship within various music communities, and Prince effectively mentored Janelle Monae. They were they were very close, um, and Prince is key to the Detroit, Michigan narrative as well. Detroit was uh, where where Prince had this huge base, and uh, Prince would always drop um, drop the fresh cuts of his tracks in Detroit he would give them to the Electrifying Mojo uh, who played um, had this like midnight radio show in Detroit and this is back when radio ruled the distribution of music like to get your song played on the radio really meant something and also the cities had very different radio music cultures you had to drive to within the city limits of Chicago to hear Chicago house music on the radio being spun by Chicago house DJs you had to travel to to Detroit to hear detroit radio stations that would then play detroit techno and prince is a part of this so electrifying mojo would play prince um uh, so there's this whole assemblage here of connections um but janelle manet would be one one artist for like for for sure we could go into a whole talk just around manet's work um and also where she's gone with it since like her uh her um, cyborg feminism, or um, like her with her with her last album, and her very interesting roles within uh, contemporary science fiction films, um, as well as historical films, like everything from Hidden Figures um, uh, to the episodes that she's done. For, I can't remember the name of the of the Netflix science fiction series, but um, you know, as an actor, she's she was already acting the role of a performer and undertaking the, the idea of being a music performer as a form of identity exploration. You know, she was never performing as Janelle Monáe, she was performing as Janelle Monáe playing Cindy Mayweather. And Janelle Monáe was like a simulacrum or effect of that. So this is this is like a very like intentional exploration of this history. Um, in hip hop, again, this is not super current, but the legacy of outcast cannot be like understated. Um, in a way, they're like the most deconstructive force in hip hop, because in the midst of the East Coast, West Coast rivalry of the 90s, outcasts popped up and went, we're South Coast, we're neither of you, and we're alien. <laughs> and that was tapping into some earlier currents because with the birth of hip hop, again, I know I'm rewinding the clock on this, but the birth of hip hop, you have like Africa Bambaataa and the Salsonic Force, and you have the Rammelsy coming out of New York with very explicit science fictional themes in their work, like Afrofuturist themes. And that feeds forward into, especially like Wu-Tang Clan and RZA and uh, Dr. Octagon, Cool Keith, Um, um, And then you get Outkast. And today you see their influence, like there's many hip hop artists, like, I mean, Killer Priest is still putting out amazing work. He's a bit old school, but he's still, you know, know, continuing this Digable Planets tradition um, is still going forward um, with their, shoot, I can't remember the name of their latest projects, but... um, uh but a a really experimental hip-hop artist who would be tapping into this would be clipping so like clipping brings like noise and beats into the mix which might not appear on the surface right away afrofuturist in respect to like being very science fictional but actually like musically is addressing this tradition of um, um, distortion and and noise and challenging identity through uh, a whole like a whole kind of reconstitution of like what hip hop can be. Other artists would be hieroglyphic being. Um, so he's from. Wait a minute. No, I'm not actually sure where Hieroglyphic Being is from, and I might confuse them with someone else because I'm ad-libbing this, so please Google Hieroglyphic Being. But again, Hieroglyphic Being works with both hip-hop and the tradition of techno and electro and bringing these things together and then adds in, like, samples from jazz. And the other artist who is similar, who passed away two years ago, was Ross G from Los Angeles. And, like, Ross G was part of the scene with, like, Flying Lotus. And Ross G, like, made very explicitly sampled Sun Ra and brought Sun Ra samples into instrumental hip hop and like down tempo. So I mean, those are just some names that can come to mind, but there are stuff everywhere now. It's exploded, especially in the visual arts. I mean, you just go on Instagram or any social media and you put in the hashtag Afrofuturism and you just have artists just from all over the place now, like making things that, that um, explore either black side work aesthetics or, or black, you know black science fictional visuals often bringing in um, ancient Kemetic or Egyptian themes into the artwork. Obviously
1: for the students, there's always uh, the challenge of discerning something as Afrofuturism versus something is not, right? And so there's a question the student is asking, you know, what characteristics of music would you say are considered to be Afrofuturism? Like the use of dissonance or repetitive rhythm patterns. I think you sort of talked about this throughout your talk. And I will note that one of the things that Sasha Womack, which we, we rely very heavily on in terms of her, her work because it's so accessible, she talks about lyrics, new technologies, and performance being keys to understanding something as being Afrofuturist. But if Grace Jones is a good example of, of someone I would say is Afrofuturist too. So you know, how, would you, how would you help students who are trying to discern Hey, I'm looking at something. I feel like it's Afrofuturist. How will I know? How will I know
0: it's Afrofuturist? How can I be sure? I am familiar with this question because I've had students come to me and say the same thing: Is this Afrofuturist? An interesting borderline, like an interesting borderline artist for me would be FKA Twigs. So, like, I find FKA Twigs videos will often explore Afrofuturist visual themes. But her her lyricism, not so much. Her lyricism is often exploring like relationship dynamics, which is fine. It's not a judgment call. But I don't find that her lyricism evokes a sense of off-worlding the self. Does the music alienate you from your everyday subjectivity? Does the music propel you beyond the confines of the psychodrama around you? Does it make and make you question who and what you are? And you don't you do not need lyrics to do that. I mean that that is the entire point of Detroit techno. It is primarily non-lyrical electronic music. Instead, it's a combination of not only just rhythmic elements. All music has rhythm to it, unless it's stasis music. But uh, it's the way that the rhythms combine at different affective tones that then signify different sonic histories. So in Detroit techno, you often have a harsh, like repetitive 909 kick, and that feels alienating. It feels mechanical, it feels industrial. It can be very oppressive on a loud sound system, dark energy, but then these chords will come in, these synth chords, and these synth chords will feel transcendent, they'll feel cosmic. They'll feel like they're lifting you up out of the grinding machine of everyday life and sending you out towards the stars, while at the same time referencing the Black gospel and church tradition. Matt Mike plays a uh, church organ at his church while making, and he makes electronic music. So this is the combinatory of these two things. And this is why Detroit Techno Brings in an uh, aspects and element of Chicago house music. Chicago house music really, for the most part, is the continuation of disco. It's it's uh, reconstituting and often resampling disco tracks. And those disco tracks are very much tied into the black gospel um, tradition. You know, there's choruses, there's hand claps on like the two four, right? But techno will bring in staccato percussion and sixteenth notes and more more machinic and, and, and like industrial sounds and 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 that tension between that we talked about earlier between craftwork and george clinton you'll hear it sonically between the funk and the alienation and so for me if you know is the artist afrofuturist i mean this is this is this is a serious theoretical complex question some artists are evidently and obviously afrofuturists like Dorexia. they have uh, a, like a narrative in their art in their artwork they will they will uh, uh, tell you like this is a, a, a statement from Drexia on their Quest album liner notes, where because um, um, uh, the electro music in itself, okay, it's electro music, but what really propels it to the level of Afrofuturism is a liner note, and um, and then their sonics make all the more sense, and their track titles like Bubble Metropolis or the or the Sea Wolf. and. Um, uh, Kajua Shun called this phonofiction, so he, he, you know, when he went to write his book More Brilliant Than the Sun, he was going through record labels and and liner notes and just finding fragments and assembling these fragments into a phonofiction. So you don't need lyrics in the track, but often there are subtle cues left by the artist, and this is where visual art plays a role for sure. Um, But there are records that I have with no visual art, the track title doesn't exist, there's a stamp on the 12 inch and yet it sounds Afrofuturist, right? And it's just because now it's, it's tapping into a sonic history. And this is where theoretical work gets really bogged down. Like you have to turn to like Christoph Cox or people who really put a lot of time thinking about the languages, the nomenclature and the concepts that we need to describe affective sound structures, which do not name themselves so i mean my question is does it make you feel like you're engaging with something we might call the radical black imaginary (laughs) like does it propel you in that direction and if you can make a strong interpretive case for that then that is a solid theoretical reading but you have to make the case for it other artists are going to hand that to you great okay well then you can start with that and go from there
1: well i i appreciate that that reality obviously some of the the work that you've done, and and you and and the artists that you talked about today are obviously Afrofuturist, right? And the centrality of that is something that's a great jumping-off point for people who, for students who want to know more, looking at something like underground resistance, looking at acts that are sort of concurrent to them or contemporaries to them that are part of that movement, and being able to sort of like discern in the patterns that are being laid out. Dr. Van Been, what they're attempting to do, right? The artwork, the, the liner notes, their manifestos, because Underground Resistance is not the only Detroit techno group that has like a really strong narrative about what they're, what they're doing. But it's always the case with these things. We, 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 I promise an hour and, and an hour is what we're going to do. But uh, again, I want to I thank you as always for providing the very latest
0: in Afrofuturist
1: theoretical sound discussion. You know, it's important, I think, for, for students to understand that this is a vibrant, evolving epistemological approach, and we're, you know, really open the door to a world of thinking, and, and there are a lot of scholars like yourself, they're digging deep into these individual ideas. Some of the distinctions that that you made very early on between afrofuturism versus afro-pessimism and things like that, again, I would urge students those are different theoretical movements that might be associated with Black studies. You can look those up and you can under- kind of understand what, what, what Dr. Van Bean is talking about. But obviously at the end of the day, as is always the case, we will want to emphasize that our futurism represents something distinctly its own. And what we're really advocating for is your ability as as thinkers and, and scholars to be able to discern what it is when you see it, Right, that you're able to Integrate your understanding and, and be a critical thinker, and and uncover the sort of transformative elements associated with feature. Thank you again for all your 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 work. I know we we probably need to set you up with like a three-hour tour of your massive collection of records. I know you got stuff I ain't never heard of, so I'm like, what? Sometimes like what? And, I, and let's not forget, the Doctor Van B actually has a um, a Twitch channel where he spends and a number of other things. So, uh, so if you want to hear some of the some hear some of this stuff, you you can sort of check in with him on 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 the internet, and and listen to him sort of like talk through these things. I'm like, uh, I'm not joking. Yeah, I've, I've seen some of his, his streaming DJ sessions, so they're they're interesting.
0: I appreciate it, Matt. Thanks. Thank you so much for inviting me to speak. I really appreciate it. It was really wonderful. And uh, any of the students listening to this, you are welcome to email me um please feel free and i do not have my twitch channel up here but uh i guess i should start doing that uh yes the stuff i'm doing on twitch is actually quite conceptual like i am a vinyl dj still so uh twitch has actually become the most interesting platform for me because i can access my entire record collection um and so we actually do i've made i'm sidebar i've made networks this interesting really interesting networks of vinyl and other kinds of djs on twitch And the networks that I've fallen into are people with decades of music collecting history. And we do conceptual events every month. So we're the Slack collective, S-L-A-C, which sounds like a collective, but then the acronym changes every month. And the next one is going to be sounds like a Cthulhu cult. Um, And my take on Cthulhu is that Cthulhu is actually a Draxian arising from the deep being called forth by the Drexians, which totally overturns H.B. Lovecraft's fairly racist uh, science fiction short story. So yeah, uh, drop a line if you want to tune into that. It's, <laughs> it'll be like like 12 hours of DJs from around the world rating one to the other. And all the DJs put a lot of time into costume and lighting and visuals uh, for, the, for the online performance. So it, is, it is a beautiful little subculture that's uh, developed on Twitch during the pandemic. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Chambliss. And uh, thank you so much, uh, Sinclair, uh, for the questions. And I wish you all the well with your doctor.
1: Hello. My name is Gary Hoppenstein. I'm professor in the Department of English at Michigan State University. My favorite comic scholar is Julian Chamberlain because of his tremendous insight into the culture and world of comics, as well as his tremendous insight into how diversity can play an important role in the study of comics and the reading of comics. Thanks for listening to this episode of Graphic Possibilities Podcast. Don't forget to read some comics.